Hey everyone, welcome to another Ruby Rogues podcast. Today on our panel, we have Andrew Mason. Hey everybody. And we have Nate Hopkins. Hello there. And we have Eric Berry. Hey, how's it going? And I'm David Kumira. And today we are introducing or talking with a special guest, Curtis Rainbolt Green. Hi there. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Curtis, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, why you're famous, and just some of the projects you've been working on. Uh, well, I wouldn't call myself famous, but I, I've been doing Ruby for about 12 years now. Um, I actually, as as research for this, I was like, oh, I wonder what my first like open source contrib- contribution was. And I discovered that way back in 2009, I was using Sinatra, and I was talking to the Sinatra core contributor, core contributor at the time, and still to this day, Constantine Haas? Oh, God, I hope I spell his name right. Or pronounce his name right, but uh, he he was building Sinatra, and I was using it, and I was like, "Hey, I've got this pre-built Sinatra thing," and I gave it to him via zip file over the email, and that was my like my first open source contribution. He used it for something. But these days, I'm mostly working on maintaining these large-ish libraries like VCR. Uh, it was VCR is actually my first attempt to do that. So you've been doing open source since before I was in high school. Oh, Christ. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, that's an interesting way to put that, but yeah, I guess. So. My early days in open source were very arrogant and overconfident, and my more recent open source development has been very isolated and supportive. But yes, for the last 10 years, plus years. Oh, man. So Curtis, I think we all run into that syndrome where we're young, we think we can rule the world, we know everything, and then life and reality smacks us in the head. Or at least for me. Hey, it hasn't hit me yet, so let me keep running my arrogant train. <laughs> it, it is coming. I, I would have immediately have muted my younger self if they had entered any sort of group chat. It was, it was bad. <laughs> So, Curtis, can, uh, most Rubyists, I think, that have been around the block have had some exposure to VCR. Can you just touch on what it is and and why uh, it's useful? So, um, it's actually grown beyond Ruby uh, substantially um, in that there are quite a few clone, not clone, but similar approaches and clone libraries in other languages. I think upwards of 10-ish languages have implemented our uh, format directly. Um, some calling themselves like VCRJS, others going, uh, I think Elixir's is Betamax. Well, with all the same idea, and that is, initially, when you are writing tests, sometimes you will have to communicate with the outside world. It's a shame, but you have to. And 
in order to make your tests easier, it can be helpful to record the responses from those servers, those outside calls, so that you have faster tests and more reliable, I guess, framework for building your understanding of the outside world, which is not really word say, but basically we mock the outside, uh, outside world. For outside world means like some HTTP call. Although I've heard some people are using it for doing, doing it via mocking it all for, for like raw TCP stuff and UDP stuff, although I haven't seen anything directly. Like they're doing some weird stuff. So, yeah, I'd love to pick your brain a little bit in terms of how, when, when does that approach start to fall down? Like how much should we be using VCR? Ooh, before I go to this, VCR was initially built by Myron and he's a huge like testing person in Ruby. Like he has done a lot for our community. Um, his work is great. However, I think when projects get to be big enough, and by projects, I mean applications. Your, your standard Rails application is a great example. When you've written like your 10th or 20th test for some, hey, I have to authenticate against uh, Google Pay, or I have to verify an address with Shipley or whatever it's called now. That is when you should stop using VCR. You just write mocks around the methods that would make calls to those things, right? There should be a function that's like contact uh, Shipley, and that should be mocked instead of the network request itself. And the reason I suggest this is because what I've, I've seen in, in, in the real world is that people have this great VCR setup that will be recording everything, and we're talking like, 20,000 VCR files. And some of them aren't even used. They're recording responses from four years ago. And yes, the test passed, but that's because you basically said, okay, you know, at this point in time, 12.43 a.m. <laughs> on my machine, this worked. And that, that's not great. That's, that's, not, that's not sustainable. So test passing in that scenario is, is akin to works on my machine. Oh, to an extreme degree. In fact, as much we've also seen errors where that only that were like, hey, this wouldn't even really work. Like this shouldn't have even worked at all. But <laughs> VCR, like, I'm able to because you can you can those YAML files, those cassette files, you can write whatever you want them. They don't have to pass HTTP spec. They don't have to be like actual real world examples. So it's not even just works on my machine. It's like works in this specific scenario. Yeah, and I would worry about. The third parties, so any kind of API call we're making out to some external service, we have literally zero control over. So unless if it's an internal project that you're calling out to. So my point is, we are often going to run into situations where other companies do not have good development practices. They do not version their API correctly, or they will deprecate it in some way. So they would make a breaking change to their master API that you're trying to call. And now all of a sudden, in the real world, your application's failing, even though all your tests are passing. So that's one of my big issues around doing something like VCR in overabundance. If it's just one or two small services that we want to have good code coverage on, then I'm okay with it. You know, adding it in, it does the test and, you know, we're going to be relatively okay. But designing your entire test suite around VCR sounds like a complete nightmare. No offense. No, no. I mean, that's, I, I, that's why I tell people is that like, 
don't over rely yourself on VCR. It's it's to get you to the next prototype. It's not to get you to the finish line. Unless, and this is the one example where I have an exception is, unless you are building a library where it doesn't really so much matter the content you're getting back from their request, but that you made the request. So for example, let's say you're testing a library that has to do with networks. Because like, then it doesn't matter because if the content changes, you're te- in this test, doesn't care about the content changing, then it's cool. That's fine. Because it VCR will let you avoid having to make an entire network call out, outbound. That's nice. But that's the only exception, really. So I'm hearing the recommendation is that we just test in production. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Okay. So fun fact, there were a couple of people who, uh, from com- big companies who have contacted me asking about compression when it comes to VCR. They wanted to store these VCR cassettes in a compressed way in, uh, inside of Redis, I think. I was like, well, that's really, that's strange. I've never heard of that before. Uh, it turns out they were using VCR for non-test purposes. Because again, at its core, VCR is, hey, given this wrapped HP request using a lot of different libraries, go make the request possibly and then record it. Which, if you think about it, that could be used for some very interesting practices. Like say you want to do analysis on outbound data, that's that's you could do that. You just wrap this and you know uh, make sure you're proxying through this VCR server, and suddenly you can see all outbound API traffic for whatever reason. They never really told me exactly what they're doing, but once they were like, "Oh, we do this," I was like, "Oh, what, what could you possibly do it?" Interesting. Well, today we wanted to talk about Kubernetes, and so I don't want to stray off on our topic too much, but so. Curtis, why don't you give us an introduction to what Kubernetes is and why we should care about it? So how is it going to revolutionize our lives? <laughs> um, okay, so first off, I want to explain that I'm not uh, an expert in Kubernetes. I'm just someone who uses it. Let's just say this. I've, I've already blown through my Google Cloud credits significantly, accidentally, by making mistakes. So I'm an expert by, by failure. Kubernetes is a way of describing your system that the, the perfect system you have. It's like saying, hey, there should be a server that is accessible from the outside that is running with at least two instances and is connected to this persistence layer. That is Kubernetes. It's a way of describing, hey, I want this. This is the system I want to exist. And then the Kubernetes engine's job is to attempt to fill that role, right? Okay, well, I'm going to spin up two servers and then I'm going to mount this persistent volume and then I'm going to allow a network connections from the outside. And if it can't achieve that, then it fails and rolls back and things like that. So it is, it is a way of describing a system and then making sure it gets to that description. Yeah, and one thing I really like about Kubernetes, if you have a proper production setup with at least three nodes, is that you're going to get a lot of free stuff. Stuff like high availability, where if one of your physical servers or virtual machines dies then it's going to fulfill the promise of the two replicas or the two virtual machines or containers in this case to have running. So it's automatically going to deploy one of those instances if it's on the dead server over to one of the healthy ones. So it takes care of a lot of the DevOps stuff that you would otherwise get woken up at 3 a.m. for so you don't even have to worry about it. As long as your physical servers are healthy, then things are going to pretty much just kind of quote, magically work. Yeah, um, I, I found a lot of value as an application developer in being able to describe my system as a set of files. 
and then just assuming that the machine will either, you know, apply those changes or tell me what it couldn't, couldn't do. That's, that's hugely valuable. I mean, a lot of our, our systems, we just kind of like, we push the code to GitHub and then we eventually try to deploy to production. And it's just kind of a very hands-on process. But Kubernetes kind of allows us to take back that time, right? Um, I don't want to have to babysit the production deploy. I kind of just want it to happen. Yeah, and one of the things that I found, because a few years ago, I was doing a lot of CloudFormation scripts. So my AWS stack was, as you said, building out what my environment or infrastructure should look like in a file format, so in YAMLs or JSON. And from there, it would create all the networking and it would create the virtual machines or whatever, all the database engines. But the problem is you had to have a more in-depth knowledge about networking, subnets, uh, VPCs, and all of that stuff. So with Kubernetes, you really don't... If you don't want to have to worry about all that stuff, you don't have to. You can let Kubernetes take care of all of it for you. You just have to have a general understanding of what ports are you going to expose and that kind of stuff. So it's going to be a lot easier to pick up and learn and actually get productive with right off the bat than doing something like CloudFormation. Because once you have your CloudFormations, then you have to worry about, okay, now how the heck am I going to actually deploy my code to these virtual machines, set up load balancing, auto-scaling, and all that. So now you're adding a whole nother layer of complexity that you really need a dedicated person to kind of handle if that's not your wheelhouse. So I think Kubernetes can take away a lot of that overhead. So you can focus on the application development and just the... infrastructure definition and have your Docker file take care of building out your application layer. Yeah, there's actually, I want to throw out there for this, is that like Kubernetes has this precarious situation right now that I've observed, again, as an application developer, where it does all the things that we've currently described Kubernetes are doing and does them really well. But I think that it's a lot less polished than it presents itself in many cases. I'll give an example. In Kubernetes, you have to tell Kubernetes that there's going to be an outbound or in or rather an inbound connection from a, the network. It's called an ingress. You have to define it. It's easy peasy. But that's just the Kubernetes engine layer side of the networking. You still have to like get that packet to your Kubernetes engine, right? And that can depend wildly on whatever system you deployed Kubernetes to. For example, uh, in Google Cloud, you have to set up what they call uh, a an external uh, address. It's just an IPv4 or IPv6 address. We get to actually go do that. However, they've set up a special system where if you deploy an ingress to your Google Cloud Kubernetes engine, it will look for a piece of metadata to automatically determine which external address uh, to use. So to be clear... They will look for effectively what is a comment in your code to figure out how to hook their system up to yours automatically. And that that's screams like, that's a red flag for me because I've seen that kind of like, oh, we're just going to read, co- you know, we're going we're gonna to read into your comments and your code for an understanding of how to do this thing. Uh, and, and I've seen systems like that and those are, those are really brittle, right? Because you can't, you can't type check comments. You can't. You can't do analysis of comments. 
it's it's harder, much harder to do. Yeah. And I think that's one of my bigger grievances about Kubernetes is there's so much abstraction that you almost lose visibility. So in the example of a pod or a container, is a, they call the container, Docker containers, pods. So as a pod fails to spin up because of a liveness probe or something failing, then you only have a super tiny window of time to get in there to try to figure out what it's doing or failing at before that pod is destroyed and it reattempts it. So if you don't have much experience and all the different settings that you can put into your YAML files to spin up the environment, then you could be trying to race against a clock to try to get some kind of log file to be able to diagnose why is this not spinning up correctly and why is Kubernetes not reporting it to me? Yes, a lot of Kubernetes interactions is definitely meant for like you've got a team of three DevOps people working on it, I feel like, for example, like that that log situation described, the solution in Kubernetes land is to have a a log watcher that reads from Kubernetes' logs. Because this all logs to Kubernetes and they store it. It's just there's no way to see all logs across all pods. So, well, by hand. So they're like, oh, use some sort of logging software. Like uh, Grafana, they recently came out with a thing called Loki that does exactly this. You just spin up a Loki instance in your Kubernetes, give it the right permissions, and suddenly you have access to all of your Kubernetes logs, and now you're not racing against time, right? Now you're, you're just reading a regular log file. But they don't tell you that. That, that, doesn't come, that isn't in the tutorials. No one says, hey, you're, you're going to have this problem where you have, to, you have to rush to get your logs, and the solution is to set up some sort of logging software. Like, that's not in the tutorials. Uh, or in the guides. Uh, that's just something you have to learn trial by fire. Yeah, and so do you think that Kubernetes, where does it really shine as far as the development lifecycle? So do you think that it is great for a CI/CD plugin to stand up review platforms so you can review what the code changes are and then have that destroy the instance once you're done with it? Or do you think it's really good for production use or a mix of both? So as I understand it, the best value, the, the thing that Kubernetes is trying to really succeed at is what are called stateless services. And that is basically, you save your Rails application, right? doesn't matter how many Rails instances you have running, right? But you, that's, that's your pool of Rails applications. Those are all running and they're receiving requests in a load balanced way. That is really easy to do Kubernetes. You define your load balancer, like Ambassador or Itzo or Nginx even, and you define your Rails application, you say how many you want, bam, 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 it's out there. That's where it really shines, is being able to say, I just have these things, they receive data, or they, they run in a clustered way, have at it. Um, and there's nothing special you need to do for Rails, you know, like clustering a bunch of Rails processes. It's not, it's not Rails' job. It's the load balancer's job. Um, that's what it really excels at. However, due to the nature of the design of Kubernetes, there's a lot of cool things you can do. Like you said, in Kubernetes, you can give namespaces for a cluster. A cluster can have many namespaces, right? And so you can deploy like your entire application ecosystem, your Rails app, your sidekick process, uh, your Nginx into a namespace and then duplicate that in another namespace. And they're just simultaneously running. No extra magic. 
And if your namespace happens to be, say, your PR uh, pull request number, how about that? You know, now you can say that, oh, or your Jira ticket number, I guess some, some people do. Now you've got a cluster of your services with your code changes that happens to just contain your changes for the, say, this Jira ticket. And then you can just say, hand that off to someone and say, here's a special URL that'll allow you to access just my namespaces logic. That's really cool. That's, that's a nice little like added bonus. So when we're talking about the Rails application, the web servers and the sidekick processes, that's all very centric to Rails. But what about the database? Or if you have something like Elasticsearch or Redis for caching? So what about those kind of components? Would you put those into Kubernetes as well behind maybe a persistent volume? Or would you keep those as external services? So, okay, here's what I've learned. I had to learn this the hard way. And again, this is something that I feel like is the unpolished side of Kubernetes. There's a thing in Kubernetes called a stateful set. And it's a service. It's like a, an application, but it happens to have, it happens to know that it has state, like this persistent state. You can attach a persistence volume to anything, right? And then you can say, hey, okay, look, this application, this program can read from that persistence layer, right? Good example is, Oh, a good example, okay, is HTML files, like your 500.html and your 400.html. That is a file on a storage layer, then you'll want to serve that, right? That's on a persistence layer. Stateful sets are like smarter about its persistence layer. However, everything I've heard from the real experts, specifically Mr. Hightower, is that don't put your databases in Kubernetes. That is a huge mistake. Um, And the reason this is, for example... Stateful sets have a replica value like everything else. You can say, hey, I need 10 of these things to exist. If you set your replica value to zero on your Postgres database inside of Kubernetes, your data is gone. That's it. And that's not obvious. It's not an obvious thing. So every piece of advice I've heard is don't put your Elasticsearch, don't put your Kubernetes, don't put anything you care about data-wise, persistence, into Kubernetes. Leave that as an outside service. That said, my personal project that's in Kubernetes right now has a Postgres and an Elasticsearch inside of it. So, Yeah, we, we don't like to follow rules or advice. We <laughs> like doing our own thing, right? So, Absolutely. So uh, the one time that I actually do spin up a MySQL or Postgres instance in Kubernetes in a non-persistent volume is for my tests. So if I am deploying a code commit, which is going to spin up a automatic environment, its own namespace containerized environment, I'll actually inject in a MySQL server in there as well, a container for MySQL, and then have that run the migrations and seed in some test data. So that way the user can go in, do the testing. And once they are finished testing, it's going to destroy that entire environment along with the data. So I guess, as you said, you know, don't put anything in there, even in a persistent volume for data that you care about. It should be in an external service. And I would say also for anything that requires uptime, so if you've ever attached a Redis server to your Rails application for caching, if that Redis server goes down, then your application is going to start experiencing a bunch of errors. So if there's a connection to one of the pods that you have for Redis, if that goes down for whatever reason, maybe it runs out of RAM or swap or whatever, 
then you run the potential of that connection going down, the new instance not being up in time, and then you are just getting really random intermittent errors in your Rails application or logs. That's going to be hard to trace back if you don't have that exposure that you're running out of RAM on this server. Absolutely. I've, I've also seen some people, they'll have uh, one-time scripts that run in Kubernetes that will, like, they'll, their, their test, say... Um, what's the word for this, their feature branch uh, deploy will connect to the, uh, like a, a specific database and they'll just create the entire schema in its own like isolation, but still talk to the same database. Uh, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of like do-it-yourself stuff in Kubernetes, which is great because it brings in a big community. Anytime you were, where you're saying, hey, I have this tool and you can do whatever you want and it's okay, that brings in a lot of people. Right, uh, React was a great example of this. I think here was a thing where it was like, "Hey, we're just going to do the view layer, and the rest you can decide on your own, and we're going to be okay with that." That had brought in a lot of initial people because they're like, "Oh, I can just do what I want here." You know, there's no rules, there's no guidelines, but you have to follow that up later with guidelines. You know, and I think communities here. This is one of the again one of the, the polished layers. The whole feature branch thing is a great way to ship experimental code, like spin up a universe just for this experiment, and fantastic. That said, it's, that's a lot of work you have to do to get that point. So I got a question. Um, I've, I've got some exposure to ops. Um, like I went pretty deep in Chef back in the Chef days, Chef and Puppet days. Uh, went pretty deep into Docker, um, set up quite a few, even production deployments that were just kind of like hand-stitched uh, Docker files and whatnot. Spent some time kind of poking around on AWS and the entire ecosystem. Always treated like my data persistence tiers as appliance tiers, kind of like what we're talking as a best practice here, where they weren't necessarily enveloped in, in all of that. But after having you know spent a good chunk of my development career doing those things, I now pretty much always just reach for uh, like out of the box solutions. So I go straight to Heroku these days. <laughs> So what I'm, what I'm looking for is the sales pitch here. Like, when is it good? Is it good enough for me to get back into the ops game? Or, because here's what I want. Here's what I want from an ops story. I want a Heroku that is just a one button. Here's, I solved my problem. I don't have to think about it. But when I need to reach in for the control, I can do it. So, okay, I will repeat something that, so there's this uh, person on Twitter, uh, his last name is Hightower, I think his first name is Keesley Hightower, he's very, if you just look for Hightower, you're going to find him. But he talks about Kubernetes a lot. And one thing that he says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, is that Kubernetes, the fact that people know about Kubernetes is kind of a mistake in the system. Like, you shouldn't. Like, for example, Heroku uses something very similar to Kubernetes underneath the covers, as I understand it. How's it even Kubernetes now? That one button solution you're talking about, the thing that you and I both use to, to push things out, that is supposed to be the layer on top of Kubernetes. You shouldn't know. The, the plumbers, as he likes to call it, are the ones who should care about this. That said, um, I, I don't, it's not there yet. Or I should say, if it is there yet, it's siloed in these proprietary companies. Like, like for example, they're, one of their entire selling points is that like, they've, they've built this entire layer on top of the plumbing and you just had to get push. That's cool. That's neat. That does not exist yeah. in the real world, really. 
Yeah, the control isn't there either. Like sometimes you need to reach down and do some really custom thing with a reverse proxy or something like that, right? And and Heroku doesn't make that easy. And in some cases, some of those things you might want to do may not even be possible, right? Yes. Um, I got a great example from a previous work experience. We were using Heroku, a lot of dinos. Like we had to call in and ask for more dinos or we'd hit that limit. Um, and we needed to scale up significantly for an oncoming event. We knew this event was going to cause a lot of traffic. Uh, we knew this event was going to probably bring us down if we just did what we continued to do on Heroku. And so that's, that's when the upper management decided to move us to AWS. But one thing we did to get us to that point, to even get us to the point where we're like, we're using 40 dinos and still worry about going down, is we use PG Bouncer, right? So if, if for those who haven't used PG Bouncer, in Postgres, every connection is expensive. This is why Heroku limits you to 500 connections for their professional tiers and above, because it's expensive memory-wise. Every connection is like 10 megabytes. So if you want 1,000 people to access your web- website at once, you're looking at a lot of memory. That's, that's expensive. That's not even including your actual application memory. So PG Bouncer, what it does is it, it pools con- clients across many transactions. So you can have, you can go up to like, uh, say, 20,000 people and use only about a 500 connections. It's great. It's fantastic. It's a way of saying, hey, given this limited resource, let me pull that in a way so that multiple people can still access my website in an in a, in a efficient time manner. That is really hard to do on Heroku. They only recently added a special functionality for that. The way you used to have to do it is you'd have to set up a special build pack, and that would run PG Balancer. And so inside of your dyno, it'd run PG Balancer, and then on top of that, it would run your application. And PG Balancer would be local to that dyno, which would be frustrating because so you got 500 connections on Postgres, and you've got 40 dynos. How many connections am I allowed to have in PG Bouncer? Well, it's dynamic. You can't know that. That's, so you'd have to like, you'd have to guess. Oh well, okay. If I'm at 40 dynos maximum, that means I can only have 10 connections per connection. It was it was a funky math. So you know that was a hard thing in Heroku. They made it easier now, as I understand it. No, I'll have to look into that. I'm still doing the the build pack. <laughs> oh yes, as far as I know, they they've released like a special PG Bouncer button. You press now, which is, oh, you know, that's awesome. but that is easy, really easy in Kubernetes. I mean, that's easy in like just doing it yourself, but that's really right. easy in Kubernetes. I say, hey, here's this thing. It talks to A and it talks to B, uh, or A talks to it, it talks to B. It has this many instances of it. Boom, that's a YAML file, easy to digest. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. I want the service that. Like I'm happy to pay a premium for the plumber plumbers to build all that for me, but I also want the ability to drop in to the configuration myself and manage it, it you know, when I need to. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. 
Triplebyte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash rogues. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. There is a open source platform project. It's a platform as a service project for Heroku called Heffy. So Heffy Workflow. And it is a fork of the Dees workflow, which is supposed to be a Heroku or Doku-like instance for Kubernetes. So that might add that layer of abstraction that you're looking for to make things more simple. I don't know if I would trust it for a production use, but I think for tinkering or hobbyist projects and stuff, it might have some value. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the Dees one is like, it's gone, if I remember correctly. Like they're no longer yeah. maintained. Uh, which, I mean, I don't envy them. You know, it was at the beginning of Kubernetes that DevOps as open source has not had the best... Like, you have two choices if you want to do open source DevOps tooling. Uh, one, it's you. Or two, you're a company. Like, that's it. That's your choice. As far as I know, there's very few mo- uh, heavily funded open source projects for DevOps that are also not owned by a specific company. So I don't envy their... They're like, I understand why they might have not maintained it anymore. Yeah. I hadn't heard of The closest one I can think of is the GitLab Auto DevOps, but that's flaky at best. You know, and it's backed by GitLab, but I've never actually gotten it to successfully run the Auto DevOps. So I've always just ended up doing my own YAML files and stuff like that to get it up and running. Yeah, um, it, it, it's, it, it's quite an interesting like, ecosystem in Kubernetes. Like, for example, if you don't, you're not in Kubernetes, you may not know this, there's this thing called Helm. Have either of y'all used Helm? Yeah, the Helm teller. Okay. Yeah, so Helm is like packages for Kubernetes, right? I'll give an example. Oh, GitLab. GitLab needs a Rails server, a Postgres instance, and a Redis server, right, for the background jobs. Those all need to exist for, for GitLab's community edition to function correctly, right? So if you were to build this yourself, you'd have a Kubernetes file, you service for each of those, a deployment for each of those, boom, ship that. A Helm is that as a package. An entire system, like eco universe, in a wrapped package that you could deploy to Kubernetes. So a good example of this is uh, the uh, Elastic stack, which is Elasticsearch, Kibana, uh, and Beats, uh, as well as some other things. There's a Helm pack for that where you press a button and it's installed onto your Kubernetes engine. You'll have an Elasticsearch with two read followers, uh, a Kubernetes cluster with an ingress. Like it's all built in. That, that, that sort of like exists. However, the caveat is uh, I accidentally spent $200 on Google Cloud because I had installed a, some sort of CDCI Helm. It's a, a whole thing. And they were like, oh, yeah, you need 22 cores and 16 gigs of RAM for this. Oh, and also we're going to need 300 <laughs> gigabytes of storage space. And the reason is that Helm was built for a company. You know, that was like the whole point of that was to be consumed by small startups. I don't have 200 bucks a month for a CCI for a small project. But uh, you had that sort of like that kind of ecosystem out there. 
Yeah. So my advice to those who are looking to get started with Kubernetes on the cheap is find a computer. Doesn't have to be the best computer in the world with a decent amount of RAM, at least 16 gigs or plus, and then install Ubuntu and Micro K8s. So mm-hmm. Micro K8s is a single node Kubernetes instance. So it's not high available. It's not fault tolerant. But if you host it yourself, it's free. I was able to get a 64 gig, 24 core processor server or 24 threads. So dual six core processor server for under $400. And with that, I'm running a Kubernetes instance on there, uh, micro K8s, and it's a perfect tinkering playground. Yeah, I, I would, I would, uh, that was, that's probably what I should have done. And so I went straight to Google Cloud <laughs> Kubernetes engine because I don't want to, I don't want to run a Kubernetes engine. That's, that's not my, I don't want to, it's not my job and not my free time, especially. And I found it's, it's actually kind of expensive for like one off projects to do that. Like I have a side project that's sitting in Kubernetes Cloud and it's costing me like 70 bucks a month. And it's like, oh, I could have just put this on a free instance of Roku. No problem. But, yeah, not invented here. Yeah, even on Azure, I found that running just even a small 14 gig, uh, six core instance is going to cost upwards of like 80 or $90 a month. So I think Kubernetes, unless if you're hosting it yourself, it doesn't really make sense for these small hobbyists, unless if you are going to be running multiple applications on there. So you're kind of dividing that cost evenly across your projects. Or if your projects are making money. Yeah, that that is a cool incentive that I haven't tapped into yet is the idea like, oh, I can I can just have one, you know, I can run a Kubernetes cluster with Postgres and then just put multiple projects on that cluster. That's that's something I haven't done yet, but I was like, oh, I could do that. Do either of you have any exposure or experience with Cloud sixty six? Oh, I you, I, is that I the DevOps logo. thing? Yeah, I'm wondering if they're if they're kind of what I was asking for earlier. It looks like you can drop into some of your Kubernetes config, but it doesn't look quite as simple as a Heroku deploy. So I think there's still some, you have to put on your ops hat for a few days and set up the infrastructure and test it all out and whatnot. But you get that level of control and maybe it's not as big of a time investment. There are tools for Kubernetes, like messing with your Kubernetes live, like a Kubernetes, but they're very, very uh, immature. And my main problem, and I've seen this happen before in other instances and other areas, where you add so many different layers of services just to kind of, quote, make your life a little bit easier. But then when something goes wrong, you end up making your life so much more complicated because you have to find out who is the offender that's causing me problems. You know, is it Cloud 66? Is it my Kubernetes instance? Is it my Docker registry? So you're going to be chasing down a rabbit hole until you can kind of figure out where is the problem. And it's not that big of a deal if it's a legitimate error that's getting logged. But when it's a connectivity issue or something like that, then things can get a lot more difficult to trace back where the problem is. It, I want to throw this out there. This reminds me, actually. One thing, and I think you'll um, you'll appreciate this. One on Heroku, like if you wanted to set up some Google Places API background job that reads from like Player Places data, where would you throw your secret? Your secret for that API? 
uh, environment variables. Yeah. Exactly. That does not really exist for Kubernetes. Like, I want to be clear. There's no way to just be like, hey, here's a value, I'm plugging it in, and then on, that restarts my Kubernetes, and it'll exist. Instead, they have two things. They have secrets, and they have config maps. Mm -hmm. Those are the same things, as far as I can tell. I haven't been able to get an expert to tell me that they're different, except that secret data can be stored in Base64. <laughs> so the idea is that you have this YAML file, and that YAML file can have a dictionary, like a key value system, and that each key in that dictionary key value can be turned into either into an environment variable or a file on the file system. And that's kind of neat. But the problem is, there's just, it just none of the people writing the documentation for Kubernetes seem to be approaching secrets the way Heroku brought me up to write, do secrets with environment variables, right? If these config maps, and if it's really secret, you don't even want to use secrets because secrets are stored in Git, obviously, right? You don't want to store your secret values in Git. So you use, when, it, when, you, when you're doing, you know, real applications, you're supposed to be using key management systems, which are complex and definitely not fully supported in Kubernetes. So this is weird dance where you have to be like, okay, I have a value, it's secret, I want it to exist on the system, but I can't just like store it in my Git repository for my deployment, right? I have to just, I have to put it in a key management system and then encrypt it and make sure it's encrypted. It's, it's, a, it's a weird yeah. situation. It's, it's definitely not easy, as easy as like going to Heroku's settings page and just popping in a value. So I can give you my insights of how I handle that. And using the Rails credential secrets and the Rails secrets encrypted doesn't work if you need it at the VM layer. So if you, you know, it, it's not going to work necessarily the way you want it to. So what I do is I have a self-hosted instance of GitLab. And within GitLab, there are encrypted secrets that you can tie to a specific project. And from there, whenever I'm running my pipelines, so my Docker build phase, the testing phase, and all of uh, the review stages and deploy to production, I'm able to store encryptedly and safely within my CICD area or my GitLab instance, the secrets. So they're protected and safe there. And each virtual machine or pod that gets spun up by GitLab in Kubernetes is going to automatically have those. So from there, if I need to then push into a Docker image, those encrypted credentials, then I'm going to be able to do that because the pod at that point has access to those. So I think the real answer is wherever your CICD platform is, that's where you should try to put the encrypted credentials. Yeah, I, I haven't even begun to broach the CICD portion of application development with Kubernetes. Like that's that's something I have to do. I mean, I'm still using um, Circle CI. Like I I don't want to own that part of the stack myself. Um, although you know the company I'm working at, that's something I will have to own um, because they can't use like services. Yeah, that's where I'm at right now in my venture into the Kubernetes rabbit hole. And it sucks. I tell you, I love Kubernetes for what it promises it could eventually do. But getting to that eventually really, really sucks. Because you don't have the layer of visibility. If I go and buy a computer, install Ubuntu on there, install a server, 
you know, my Rails application, I have 100% vis- 100% visibility into what's going on, and you just don't always have that. There's a layer of unseen magic that happens, which it all makes sense, but for a newcomer who doesn't have any proper Kubernetes training, I mean, who really does? It's been out for only less than five years now. You know, there's a lot of unknowns. And unfortunately, the documentation online that you find different places where people have these issues leads you down a completely different rabbit hole, even though the error messages are the same. Yeah, I, I if I had to give one piece of advice people who are going into Kubernetes now, like application developers who want to do their own Kubernetes stuff, find people who are really experienced at it and then pay whatever you got to pay to keep them on call effectively for questions because you will have a lot and there's a lot of... Just the way application developers talk about things, like the, the wording and the phrasing we use to talk about our systems is wildly different from how Kubernetes and people who use Kubernetes talk about things. It just, it's just not a thing. Um, it's not, not easily mappable. So find someone who can do that, that for you. And I, I, I was lucky. I had two friends of mine who were, who, one of them who worked uh, at Tesla and one of them who works at one of the larger cloud providers. And they both had a lot of really in-depth experience. And so I just basically opened the DM group and I was like, hey, I'm going to have questions. Whatever phasers you need, let me know. But I'll start ringing up the bill now. <laughs> Is that disconnect in, in communication? Is that just typical with general sysadmin or is there something unique about Kubernetes? I want to say it's Kubernetes unique. I've worked with some really good DevOps people and system people and I've never really had this problem in the same way. There were some things that were like assumptions they made that I didn't make. Like um, they never wanted me to ever be the terminator on an SSL HBS request, right? And whereas I was like totally happy to do that. No, I shouldn't have been, but <laughs> I was totally happy to. Those kind of things. Like, but in Kubernetes land, it's it can be very, very different. Like, for example, if I was to say, hey, here's the container, that is to say an image that I want you to deploy, um, and it exists in the world, what would you call that? What would be the first name for that, that term for that thing? A container that is living in the world. Like Rails app. The name of the container? It's just like a, the term you'd use for, the, like, we have three services or we have three applications, right? You might say services. Websites. Yeah. Sure. Could be a website or an application or a service. Sure. Kubernetes calls that a deployment. Yep. And the name of the thing that allows you to connect, that opens that container to the wider or the inner world of Kubernetes it's called a service. That kind of disconnect really hurt me in the beginning because I was like, oh, I'm deploying a service. No, 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 you're deploying a deployment. <laughs> and the way you know it talks to, to the network layer is called a service. That sort of thing is just rampant. And it's not a, at fault with Kubernetes. It's not at fault with me. It's just, again, to, to quote Mr. Mr. Hightower, we're being exposed to the plumbing. It's like having a house with no walls we're being exposed to the plumbing in a way that we haven't before, but the gains are so great. We get to have a toilet. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm, I'm a fan for having a toilet. So. <laughs> <laughs> no. And one other note of advice is put everything in a namespace. It's going to be so much easier to identify what belongs to what later. 
You're not going to have name conflicts. Life will just be so much more grand. So everything is under a namespace. Then you have your deployments, which are the application pods that you're deploying. Then you have your services, which is, I kind of like to think of it like the load balancer for your deployments. So if you have two replicas from your replica sets in the deployments, then the service is going to say, we're pointing to this deployment area and you know we're going to balance a load for you. And then you have your ingresses, which is exposing it all to the outside world. Or hopefully. So I've got a question for, I mean, both you, Curtis, and Dave have quite a bit of experience here with some with the Kubernetes. I'm curious for myself and for the listeners, how much time have you invested into your current knowledge about Kubernetes and just with tinkering and reading and everything else that you've done? I played the fifth. <laughs> I would say three to five complete weekends. Like just absolute, you know, just devotion to like, I'm going to try to get this out and use it and connect to it and roll through any problem, not gracefully, but, you know, a couple of force pushes here and there sort of situation. Yeah, three to four, three to four weekends. It's, I would describe it as akin to learning a language. There's that first two periods where you're like, that you're where you have a real easy chance to bail out. Eh, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go back to whatever. Uh, but after that, it's it's a lot easier. Yeah, and I would say I've probably spent a little bit more time, unfortunately, uh, than you, Curtis, on it. And I don't know if my knowledge is any greater than your level. So I think I was banging my head against the wall for a while because I had a really weird uh, networking issue in my local environment that I just would not have had if I had gone with Google Cloud Platform or Azure Kubernetes or the AWS EKS. So I think I've spent probably the past six weeks on and off, uh, maybe three days a week uh, in the evenings working on it pretty nonstop. I will, I will say this, Nate. I'm at the end of wanting to know more about Kubernetes. I don't want to know more anymore. I, I think if I, if I knew more than I know now, I'd be at, it's time to look for a job in DevOps, but I'm at the end because, like, uh, I'll give you an example. I wanted to know more about my Kubernetes like metrics, like, hey, how much CPU am I using across the board? How much memory am I using across the board? Um, and Google Cloud's tooling isn't great at that. It's, it's really funky, or like I should say, it's really funky for smaller projects. And I was like, oh, there's this great thing called uh, Prometheus, which is about storing data. And there's a great thing for Prometheus about storing specifically that system data. And up to this point, I have been handwriting all of my Kubernetes files. I did it for Postgres, PG Balancer, my application, Synetry, all this stuff. This was like upwards of 60 YAML files worth of data, the configuration. And it was complete shebang. I, I won't understate. Like, I wasn't just like setting the, the, a minor instance. I was, it was like a full scale, like, oh, I want to know everything about it in my system. And this is the first time where I've been like, oh, I should just have one button press this. This is way too much for me to care about. I have a quick question too. Uh, if you have a run-of-the-mills Rails app, let's say you're running it on Heroku, just your average Rails app that you could spin up right now, what's kind of the path to get from, okay, I have your average Rails app to I have a Rails app that's in Kubernetes? You need technically three files total. 
if, if it's just a Rails application, because there's a lot of things when people say like, oh, my application, or when I definitely, when I say my application in Rails, I mean a whole bunch of stuff. But if it's just like bin slash Rails server, you need a deployment, which is, hey, given this container, I want it to live like this. And a service, hey, I want to be able to talk to this container, this, this deployment. And then an ingress, hey, I'm the outside world, I want to talk to this service. And that's the chain, by the way. It's like outside world, ingress, service, deployment. That's having an appliance tier for your database and for your Redis, right? Uh, uh, I, I guess, I've never heard appliance tier. What does that mean? Uh, just essentially the uh, a persistent service that is not kind of enveloped by your Kubernetes configuration. It's, it's a third party. It may, it may not be third party, but it's, you treat it as an appliance, essentially. It's out there, and you're just going to connect to it. Absolutely. In fact, I'd say that you should only be doing that. You should not be doing your own database and Kubernetes. Yeah, exactly. That is literally just bin real server. Now, I want to be clear, there's other things. Like, for example, a common pattern in Rails is that when I deploy my Rails application, I want to run the latest migrations. That's a job. That, that's right. That's, that's a Kubernetes thing called a job, which is kind of like a deployment except it can run in times and has a, as a, a failure, like a special failure system. And then there's some other stuff like daemon sets. There's other things that you can add to that, but like, yeah, you just need that. You said you got to the point where you're, you're done learning more about Kubernetes, or at least for the time being. What, what does that mean? Where, where are you going next with the knowledge that you have gained? That's a good question, I guess. I, I think... At this point, like I've learned that I can, I can deploy something to Kubernetes. I can take any application and turn it to something that can be deployed to Kubernetes. Kubernetes. I know how to analyze Kubernetes uh, configurations to an extent, but I just don't need to know any more. So like, there's like, for example, because of Kubernetes, how it's designed, you, Kubernetes is actually technically a CDCI, right? You can say, hey, push this to the special thing. If it fails, say, like, let's say you run your test as a job, like your migration did. You can set Kubernetes to do that. I don't want to learn how to do that. That's, that's fine. I'm going to buy that. You can set up all these event metrics things, like I told you that with the Prometheus. No, that's fine. I'm just going to go buy some. I, I know a service that's great. I'm going to just go buy that. I did. I tried to do my own uh, exception handler, uh, Sentry, which is fantastic, by the way. And now that I have to maintain that, I'm like, ah, I, should have, I should have bought that. There's so many things I should have bought. And I think that's really what, what was key for me is, Figuring out what I should care, what I should be caring about in Kubernetes, and that really happens to be the applications, just the applications. That makes sense. Oh, thank you. I'm still probably going to hold off on my deep dive. <laughs> Wait, will it get like some more rough edges knocked off? I want to be clear. I don't think it was great that I learned Kubernetes. Like it's not. I, it's nice to know now, but I mean. It wasn't, it, I, I, I might, in the beginning, I might have thought, oh, I need to learn Kubernetes. I did. There's no reason. That's fine. You know? Yep. Well, Curtis, if people want to find out more about what you're doing and reach you out online, where do they go? Uh, so my username everywhere is krainboltgreen. I have the luxury of having an incredibly unique name. So krainboltgreen anywhere. Cool. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. 
That's why I love Redisgreen. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want, so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. And so let's move on to picks. Uh, Nate, what do you have for picks? Well, let's see. I've got a list, a long list of picks that I <laughs> added a while back. Let me see if I can go through it and get a couple of these things. Uh, you know, one thing I would touch on is, um, but you know, it's relevant to our conversation is is Heroku. I've I've used Heroku at my last two two jobs, and I still spend personal projects up out there, and it just could not be any easier. Uh, to, to do some of those things. So I'll, I'll give them a little plug. So a book that I finished probably, it's been about 12 months since I finished this one, but it's, it's such a terrific book. It's called How to Be Like Walt. And that is Walt Disney. Read that, I, I moved to Florida for um, a period of time. And when I, when I was there, we were close enough to Disney that we got season passes. Anyway, the, this book intrigued me and I, I brought it in, listened to it through audio, through Audible. And, um, uh, just really enjoyed it. It's a the the subtitle is capturing the Disney magic every day of your life. Very inspiring. Like Walt was one of those rare individuals um, you know, that kind of blessed the world with his existence and, and his talents. And uh, it's it's very inspiring. Um, so recommend how to be like Walt. And one other pick would be an old movie, an old favorite. This is it's a real genius was made in 1984. Very fantastic uh, film. I highly recommend it. Awesome. And Andrew, what do you have for picks? Uh, I got two. One is a VS Code extension called Peacock. Um, I think it's pretty cool. It basically, it's pretty subtle, but it just changes like the workspace color of like your title bar or your like left nav bar, um, depending on what workspace you're in, which is kind of nice if you're working on in several workspaces at the same time or several different projects. And the next one I would have, and Dave, if this was your pick, I'm sorry to steal it, but Drifting Ruby episode 181, Intro to Kubernetes. <laughs> Started watching yes. that the other night, and then I was like, all right, I'm going to have to sit down at my computer and actually focus on this. Uh, but yeah, I'm excited to watch that and get a little intro to Kubernetes. Yeah, that was actually one of my picks. I recently did a Drifting Ruby screencast on a introduction to Kubernetes, and it was a painful one to do. So <laughs> thanks for that. So uh, one of my picks, I'll jump in here, is microk8s.io. It is the website for microk8s, and that is uh, not Kubernetes, but it's K, the number 8S, which is the shorthand for Kubernetes. And that's what I'm using in my local environment for my Kubernetes playground. And one nice thing that I really like about it is if you've screwed up your Kubernetes environment, which I have done probably 50 times now, they have a command, microk8s.reset. It'll roll back every single change that you have made to that Kubernetes instance and start you fresh with a new clean Kubernetes instance. So it's been super helpful to just 
wipe the slate clean and start fresh without having to reinstall or reprovision a whole new Kubernetes instance. My second pick is the Slack channel Kubernetes, and you can join it under slack.k8s.io. They have over 60,000 members on that Slack channel, and it's dedicated solely to Kubernetes. Small note to that is sometimes they're down due to DDoSing, just FYI. <laughs> I wonder if it is them DDoSing themselves or... <laughs> <laughs> no, I know it's been uh, down a couple of times. But it's a great Slack channel. I've posted some help on there and people have been kind to respond. Curtis, what picks do you have? Yeah, so I have, I got two. Uh, first is a game I've been playing called Satisfactory. Uh, it's in early access by the people who made Goat Simulator, surprisingly. It's an incredibly well-rounded game. It's a been described as a 3D Factorio, so if you know what Factorio is, you're going to be very interested in Satisfactory. I, I find it very relaxing to work in. The idea is that it's a game where you have raw resources and you need to build out a factory that processes those resources to research technology. Uh, there's no current end game yet, but usually these games, it takes a while for them to figure out what their end game is. Uh, but they're very fun. And then my second pick is related to the, this. This is um, Kubernetes on Rails. It's a video series, paid video series that I purchased a while back to help me understand Kubernetes a lot easier. I don't know who the author is, but I have to thank them on Twitter a while back. Um, it was really, really, really easy listen and a really easy read. So is that satisfactory game kind of take the play of No Man's Sky <laughs> where there is just no end to it? Or is it actually um, more entertaining? So, you know, that's interesting. Um, Satisfactory is about machinations. It's about throughput, amusingly enough. So I work when I'm, even when I am at home. No Man's Sky doesn't have an ending because that's an artistic choice. Satisfactory doesn't have an ending because they have a lot of work left to do. Cool. Well, Curtis, thanks for coming on today. It was fun talking about something that's going to give me a headache for the rest of the day. And no, I'm kidding. It was a great talk. Great talk. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it immensely. This is this must be how it must have been to to be like a, a cast in Shakespeare's uh, last plays. You get to be finally be on the theater. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll talk to you all later. See you, everyone. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more.